And America's history and America's story is connected with the sea. So naval history and naval heritage is not just about a particular battle. It's about how the Navy operates day to day. This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to another episode. It's always a pleasure to, to meet former staff, not only former staff, but some of my predecessors here at the museum. And we have a lot of chats over lunch or uh, email to really try to get things right, because we always learn that what has been done in the past, past is prologue. And sometimes they did things better in the 1850s or the 1990s or the early 2000s. And with us today is Dr. Bill Coger, naval historian and one of my predecessors. Uh, I am absolutely honored to uh, speak with Bill today, uh, not only as a predecessor, but as a mentor. Bill, thanks for coming over to Preble Hall. Delighted to be here. It, 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 it truly is one of the pleasures of when you see the, it, it's almost like uh, you and I had an interesting experience a few years ago when the, the class of 1950 came in for a special event for the plaque dedicated to Kneebasher, one of their their class ma- members who was part of the syndicate that that uh, really renovated the museum under your charge. And it was kind of funny because the there was a photo of you and uh, I and Scott Harmon, who was my right, right between us. It was almost like you know the ex presidents, you know. But yeah. it, you always get a chance to talk to them, to to consult with them. And I, I just want to state up front, Bill. I whenever I reach out to you and Scott with a question, I want to thank you very much for the advice you guys give me all the time. And it really helps out the museum, and that's what we have all dedicated our lives to in, in teaching the midshipmen. So thank you very much well, for that. My pleasure, Bill. Claude. That's one of the central tenets, I think, of, of being a professional, is to make sure that your successors benefit from the do's and don'ts experienced by one of your predecessors. So it's always an important professional thing to do. How did you become the director of the museum. <laughs> well, it was interesting. <laughs> I was in the history department as a naval historian. I, I came to the academy in 1983. And uh, the then director of the Naval Academy Museum, uh, Professor Ken Hagen, wanted to divert his duties and activities over to being archivist of the academy. So he came up to me and he said, Bill, I've uh, got an offer for you to become the um, executive director of the museum and I said well what, what does that mean and he said well that means it's a it's a collateral duty defined for a senior naval naval historian in the history department and I said well Ken that's all very interesting but uh, tell me what I would sort of get out of this because I'm not a museum professional at that time I'm a naval historian I'm tenured but I'm still moving towards the pro- full professor rank and he said, well, what really I enjoy most about it is a reduced teaching load. <laughs> well, at that particular time, I was playing golf a lot over at the Naval Academy golf course, and my handicap was about a 12, and I was dead set to get it down to single digits. So I said, a reduced teaching load equates then to more time on the golf course. And lo and behold, I said, sure. <laughs> but that opened, but, but that's a funny thing about professions is it, it opened up an opportunity that was just simply uh, so important for me and so enjoyable that I, it, it really took my professional career into a different direction. 
into museums permanently and since 1998. And you've, you've run several museums around the Eastern Seaboard. I, I've, I've been part of several, uh, Mystic Seaport up in Connecticut, but twice uh, I was at the Mariners Museum in Newport News and I retired from that position as uh, president and CEO. Um, so I've really enjoyed the museum world uh, from the historian standpoint because it just opens up another aspect of history that the professional historians who teach in the academic setting really just don't seem to be able to have the opportunity to learn from that experience. And so this was a shot in the arm for me to go on and do something still in my field, naval history, but do it in a way where material objects and great stories are told then to far more people than just what we were addressing at the time. And you've done that especially within the past few years uh, in your position with Hensa, which we're going to talk about for the most part of, on this podcast, and then we'll also chat about some other things on the museum. But it's really given you a, an opportunity to go national with a lot of these things. Can you tell us about what Hensa, the mission of Hensa, and how that has developed over time? Yeah. Happy to. Uh, very proud to be associated with HINSA, or what we, Historic Naval Ships Association. It's a, it's a not-for-profit organization that was created in the mid-1960s by five uh, historic ships that were recognized and saw themselves as memorials, primarily to uh, veterans of World War II. It's an organization that's designed to assist uh, historic naval museums around the country. It's grown from five to about 170 now, not only in the United States, but in Canada, Australia, several countries in Europe, etc. And our purpose is to really assist those ship museums to reach out with their missions to educate and inspire people on the heritage which is naval history. And it's been a great fun time uh, for me. Um, travel a lot, to see all these great ships, and it's, uh, it's an exciting part of the professional career. You know, we've lost so many ships over the centuries here in the United States and elsewhere. Is it really just after the World War II period that people started to recognize, now we need to preserve these ships, or was preservation happening prior to that? I mean, we know about, obviously, the Constitution and, and Longfellow's poem, uh, which helped to save it, but were there other efforts to really... Uh, save and, and restore and preserve some of these warships? There, there were, but uh, in, in the period before World War II, those ships that were considered museum ships, uh, I use, for example, not only the Constitution, which of course remains a commissioned vessel in the mm -hmm. United States Navy, so it's not in the same category as having to need not-for-profit assistance, uh, but something like the USS Olympia, the armored cruiser in, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia yeah. yeah, that was one. But it was not, in my opinion, most of the ship museums were designed to appeal to veterans. In other words, the assumption was, well, only veterans can understand what a ship is, the people who've actually sailed on them, so that's our audience. And that was a tremendous mistake. We certainly don't want to turn our back on the veterans, absolutely not. But the public needs to be inspired by the stories of what these ships did Why? and their crews sacrificing so much. Why? Why is that so important? Well, because it inspires people to not only think that the Navy and the, the sacrifices are important to the value system of the United States, 
but it serves as a tremendous recruitment tool for you. I can't tell you the number of people who've come up to me and said, you know, my dad took me aboard the USS North Carolina when I was 10 years old, and I decided right then and there that I was going to go in the Navy. And mm. this is from a retired three-star. Yeah, they are inspirations because they tell the stories. Now, the difficulty is, you know, like all ships, they don't just stay the way they are in perpetuity. They're very, very expensive. They're very, very uh, uh, difficult to maintain and preserve, especially if they're sitting in salt water like most of right. our ships are. So the, the idea of maintaining and preserving them has to become more and more of a professional museum effort by people who are not just experienced having served on a ship, but who know what programs that museums provide, who are experts in things like marketing, in public relations, in development to raise the funds necessary to keep a ship as an open ship for the visitor's experience. To what degree does the government get involved in the preservation of ships? It, I mean, there's no funding line for, for most uh, ships, is there? No, there's not. And in the last uh, 15 or 20 years, the Navy officially has taken itself further back from any kind of support whatsoever. How come? NAVC used to be the, the branch of the Navy that really helped to provide uh, uh, inspections and did other things. And as they've got their budgets cut and they've said, we can't afford to continue to support these historic ships, so therefore we are no longer giving to groups interested in creating a, uh, a Navy ship as a museum a decommissioned ship, it means that the groups that run these museum ships are now without the Navy support. Now that doesn't mean to say, however, that the Navy entirely has sort of blocked itself off or vice versa. Rather than NAVC, what Historic Naval Ships Association and all our fleet members are doing are working more and more in cahoots with the Naval History and Heritage Command, which is a level two command of the U.S. Navy. And that, that group and those people, curators, museum directors, etc., are the ones that really can help us, the historic ships, and we can help them in their respective missions because our missions and their missions are exactly the same. And when you've got 15 to 17 million annual visitors on our ships each year in the United States, that's an opportunity to attract and tell the great stories of naval history and heritage to 15 to 17 million Americans annually. That's an incredible opportunity to tell the Navy story and the thrill and excitement of being actually on a ship, whether or not it's a carrier, to an LST, to a submarine, to a destroyer, etc. And that also includes cities or towns that may not have a naval base nearby. I mean, we're, certainly we've got a battleship, you know, Norfolk, um, and we've, we, but we don't have the Philly Navy Yard really as, as it used to be anymore. Now any, I want to put this in quotes, any town or city can request a ship. Now, and that's, that's an important part of this because people who aren't living near a Navy base can now see something and touch it and understand it and hear about it in a much more localized environment. If there's a city or town that wants a ship, how do they do it? Who do they, do they request that a decommissioned ship? Say there are a number of ships up in the Philly Navy Yard. 
right now there are some frigates and some cruisers. If somebody said, yeah, I want the old USS uh, Yorktown, for example, how would they go about doing that? It's, it's a complicated process, uh, and understandably so. Uh, a group of individuals would then apply to NAVC, an inactive ships branch of NAVC, to request a decommissioned ship, a specific one, to be turned over to them and made into an historic museum ship. Now, the Navy is very, very gun-shy on that because there have been examples of ships that the Navy has given to groups who sadly were unable to take care of the ship. And as a result, it looks bad. There's one in New Jersey, a, a submarine, submarine that unfortunately yeah. Isn't is that just partially sinking? sunk in the yeah. Hackensack River. And, you know, the interesting thing is, even though that, that submarine might belong to a not-for-profit group that's been in operation since the 1970s, when the Ling was given to mm -hmm. this group, to the public, the public looks at it and says, isn't that terrible what's happened to that World War II submarine? Why has the Navy done that? That's the question. They don't look at the local community that tried to get it. They look at, they blame the Navy. They blame the Navy. It's, it's not as if somebody says, oh, what a dreadful job that 501c3 did on that vessel. They say, why is the Navy protecting its own? So they're very gun shy now, owing to situations like this, by being able to say, sure. But in the process it still, itself still exists. In other words, the group then has to prove it is financially able to not only convert it into a museum ship, but sustain it. And that is a very difficult thing to prove. Uh, it requires millions and millions and millions of dollars to convert a decommissioned ship into a ship that can accept visitors going through it with exhibitions and stories and maintenance and security and all those sorts of things. And so kind of I don't know, I really don't know, Claude, if we're going to be able to see too many additional historic naval ships in the future. I think what we have to do, we meaning historic naval ships has to do, is to focus our attention on those that have the greatest chance to continue to succeed and do better by a fewer number rather than do worse by a larger number. So you think in the future we... And that, that includes the ships that are existent today as museum ships. You think we'll see fewer of those as well. Some of those may come offline. It, it, and it really comes down to, as you alluded to, to a business decision. How many visitors, paying visitors, can you have coming through? How many donors are there? And it almost seems like in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was a bit easier to sell because you had an entire nation mobilized in the 40s. You had all these people who were in the Navy or in some, some branch of the military. So that in the 60s and 70s, you had people who were veterans or families of veterans, and you had uh, the economic wherewithal for these communities and for these individuals to donate to these ships. But today, then, that's why some publications are having a tougher time today than they did in the 70s or 80s, because we don't have as many, say, Navy uh, people serving anymore, not, not as many Navy vets. So you have to really focus that. What are some of the success stories for museum ships in the United States? Well, let me, before I answer that, I'll just make a comment as to what you said. 
if if a historic naval ship museum decides that its primary audience remains as it did following World War II, the veterans, which were in the millions and millions, mm-hmm. and they were all devoted and committed to the sense of preserving their heritage. What's happened in the 80s, 90s, and into the 21st century is that veterans themselves have changed from what was a World War II generation veteran. The Korean veterans were similar to World War II, but the Vietnam veterans are not. The Desert Shield, Desert Storm are not the same kind of veterans. Their their psychographics of visiting museums is different than what it was. So this is another added challenge to the historic ships to try and appeal to not only veterans, but different kinds of veterans. Is that because when you had a veteran, say, from World War II, and he saw the USS Block Island and he visited that ship, he said, I was part of something greater. This was World War II. We had to fight against tyranny on two fronts, and this is how we did it, this particular ship. But today, you know, I've been having this conversation with with another group about uh, the mission of the Navy and what we've been doing for 40 or 50 years. And, and it seems to be obviously more complex in trying to understand that mission for the, for the average uh, individual. You know, we do so much on forward presence, but, you know, forward presence is something different than we beat the Nazis or we beat the Japanese. Mm-hmm. That's something that is easily understood and encapsulated in just a few words in a way that you can't today. So is it because those sailors from the past 20, 30, 40 years, oh, yeah, I served on the ship, but, you know, we just went out for a deployment and we came back. Is, is that the, the real disconnect between generations? That's part of it. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. Um, the numbers of veterans, of course, are far fewer than in the years following World War II. Um, but, but it again, it's the demographics and the psychographics. And so the historic ships themselves must begin to provide programs that appeal to not just veterans, but other groups. Other defined, just like any museum, has to define audiences and cater to the desires and wants of those to get them to come and visit, at which point, when they come for a particular program or whatever, they're there on the ship to learn more about the history of the ship, the history of a generation of sailors that served and sacrificed on that. So it's a tough, tough mission and market-related environment. And if a historic ship decides that it simply is there to serve the veterans, I regret to say it won't last too terribly long Mm -hmm. because it's just a different world. You have had annual meetings, or you have annual meetings of HINSUB, and I know until recently we uh, we hosted them here in the museum. And so you get to hear all these ideas that are coming from around the country and in some cases from around the world. Can you tell us some of the examples of how museum ships have really engaged in educational programs or marketing programs to appeal to people broader than simply Navy veterans? Yeah, sure. Well, I think probably one of the best opportunities that these historic ships, no matter what they are, whether or not there's an aircraft carrier or uh, a swift boat from the Vietnam War era. The opportunity is that they can tell stories about what happens at that. But I think uh, 
every vessel is a laboratory for STEM right now. Every vessel is so full of lessons to be taught in, in, in science and technology, engineering and math, in addition to history, but it's just full of those opportunities. So the ship then becomes the laboratory for what the local schools are required and want to teach. But it's then an opportunity to get kids that maybe otherwise would never go aboard one of these ships to not only go aboard because of the educational opportunity and the requirement of the school to say we're going to be teaching STEM and then be able to say, oh my gosh, look at this. This is incredible. I got to bring dad and mom here. And that's sort of defining a different audience, what that audience is wanting and changing your programs to become appealing to those particular audiences. Uh, some of the best ships we have uh, is understandable from the standpoint of just what they are. The USS Midway in, in San Diego, you know, big Navy town. Uh, it, is, it is the number one attraction in San Diego. Who doesn't want to go walking aboard a flight deck or uh, up and down the island and learn all about these things? And the folks at the Midway have developed a series of marketing programs, educational programs that are just fun for people and the learning opportunities are already made by the environment itself. But that's not just a large ship can do that. Smaller ships can do that. The LST-393, which is in, of all places, Evansville, Indiana, and they've got a wonderful history. The LST was actually given by the Navy to, the, to Greece and when she had outlived her usefulness to the Greek government, a bunch of veterans went over there and sailed her back to the United States. When was up this? the, um, I think it was in the 80s, up the Mississippi River to Evansville. And they've restored it in such a way as that almost every summer it goes on cruises up and down the Ohio or Mississippi River showing what it is. And it's an incredible success. And we're hoping actually to have Evansville and the LST as our host for one of our future annual conferences. So even in the heartland, where you don't think this is Navy country, we have the opportunity of having a Navy ship telling a great, great story and attracting many people, not to mention all the great volunteers who come and love working as volunteers in the preservation of these ships. That, that's a great point because you know we, we forget that our sailors simply aren't from the coasts you know i think i think four or five of our most recent soups were from north dakota south dakota and montana if i'm not mistaken yeah. so it's a great way to reach out to uh, all those folks as well what are some other examples of of some really good programming that is innovative and especially in the 21st century where you're trying to appeal to so many more people uh, well, there's quite a few of them. Um, you know, things going on uh, with the USS Cairo, which is in Jackson, Mississippi, which is, a, which is an old Civil War gunboat that was sunk and then restored, brought up from the Mississippi River and converted into uh, a museum. That's a fascinating thing. The, the Monitor, even though it's only in pieces mm -hmm. the, uh, down at the Mariner's Museum, but this is a piece of or pieces of a very historic vessel and even though the Mariners Museum has created a replica to tell the story seeing the actual remains of the ship 
is again the opportunity that can be educational, inspiring, and just simply serves in a very subliminal way what the Navy wants the American public to believe about what service it has done. Are there Confederate vessels that are part of HINSA as well, or Confederate Air, I should say? I mean, we've got the, you mentioned the Cairo and the Monitor, but have they preserved any Confederate ships? There's a Confederate ship in, um, at the Confederate Naval Museum, which is in, um, oh, uh, name, uh, town, um, where Fort Benning is, uh, in Georgia. Okay. Uh, there's a there's a there's a Confederate uh, cotton clad that again was sunk into the mud of the I think the Apalachicola River, and it was then taken up and restored, and you can see it's all its remains and everything, and they built a fabulous museum uh, on that to tell the story of this particular aspect of a Confederate vessel uh, used, but you know so many of the older ones no longer exist and cannot be resurrected necessarily without an awful lot of very advanced technology and an awful lot of money. Is, uh, well, you mentioned the Civil War ones. I, originally, I thought that, uh, gee, the Olympia would probably be the oldest ship that is preserved right now as a museum ship, or are there older ships in that? I think in, in the United States, I mean, the Monitor, of course, is earlier than that, uh, but, of course, it's not entirely so we've just got the turret and the guns and a few other pieces to it uh but yeah the olympia is the oldest and and the importance about the olympia is that it marks uh a a living example of the the period in the development of naval architecture between the age of sail iron and the age of steel and so it and the USS Texas down, down south of, of Houston in LaPorte, Texas, uh, which was built in 1914 and it served in both World War I and World War II as really sort of a fabulous dreadnought. We have the examples of ship architecture and design so that people can actually see these. And so for the very sake of having unique representation of a period of naval history and heritage, We've got ships that people can learn from. See, and that's why I think that it is so important for the Navy, and I understand why the Navy is shying away from this, but at least for them to preserve one ship from each class, and because you see this development, you, know, you think of all the ships, and I mentioned this before, all the ships that have been lost over time, that we no longer have an example of the class, but there are older ships even. I mean, who else in Hinsa is, or who else is a member of Hinsa from the international community? Um, the, 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 uh, there's, there's a couple of ships, uh, the HMCS Haida in Ontario, uh, the HMCS Sackville in Halifax. Oh, Halifax, no, in Flower Halifax, Class, no, yeah, Flower Class Flower Corvette. Class yeah, we Corvette, did an episode on and, that. And, of course, the story of World War II and the Atlantic convoys. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got not only fine examples of those ships uh, in Canada, but you've also got American ships like the USS Kidd down in Baton Rouge and the USS Slater who were involved in the Battle of the Atlantic in convoy protection. And, of course, the Kidd was where the film with Tom Hanks, uh, Greyhounds, Greyhounds, yeah. was, was, was filmed. That, that's a great point, Bill, because... You get up to the HMCS uh, Sackville up in Halifax, and the importance, that's the last ship. That's the last flower-class Corvette. I think of about 200 of them. 
that were so instrumental in the Battle of the Atlantic, but you'd never get a sense of of the size of these ships until you're on. It's not a large ship. I was up there about 20 years ago, and now, for those of us of us who have been to sea and in really heavy seas, you're struck immediately by oh my God, what were, what was going on in especially in the North Atlantic, not not a very forgiving place in in in, uh, in in some weather conditions, but to see these ships specifically and what these crews went through yeah, to get yeah. to the other side. Claude, one of the best books I think on the Battle of the Atlantic <clears throat> is Nicholas Monstrat's The Cruel Sea. Oh yeah. And as it talks about what these British sailors did in, in escort, escorting convoys, the only way you can get a sense of just the environment that they suffered through is to go and visit the Sackville and get a sense of what it must have been like in huge seas and the cold of the North Atlantic. You, you, you can't do it any other way. Yeah. And so for this very small example is, I think, how powerful and important these historic ships are. And, and on, on the other side of that spectrum is getting aboard a carrier. Yeah. Uh, we did some work on, a, on uh, the John Kennedy for my reserve duty many years ago for, for something. And, you know, I've been on carriers before, but still, even without, you know, all the, the aircraft aboard, you, the size of these ships, they are small cities. And for somebody, say, from middle America who may not be familiar with this, it's so important for them yeah. to see yeah. What does this mean to support a ship like this at sea? Or when I think Theodore Roosevelt just went out this morning or yesterday for another uh, another deployment in, in this year, and you see, you get a sense of of the scope of that what you need to do to support a navy. Uh, the some of the the international ships. I, I remember being in Stockholm and seeing the Vasa. Mm -hmm. the, is the Vasa a member of Hinsa? It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. That's an. I mean, tell us a little bit about the Vasa. Well, the Vasa was was this um, typical sort of seventeenth uh, century uh, development of naval technology, and it was in sixteen, I believe, thirty seven. I, I may not have my dates exactly correct on that, but uh, Sweden was a powerhouse in Europe in those days. And so he, the, the king of Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus, created this huge, what was defined in those days as a huge, powerful ship called the Vasa. And as the Vasa was completed, it set off on its maiden voyage from Stockholm. And if you're familiar with the area, you know, you're, Stockholm's not really on the coast. It's mm -hmm. in a bunch of islands that goes out into the Baltic. A storm came up just as she was leaving, and they had failed to put the port down and so it, she keeled over a little bit water rushed in and hundreds and hundreds of people drowned and she sunk and eventually was taken over by the mud in in the har in the harbor there and then in the 1950s and 1960s she was discovered and through an awful lot of wonderfully fascinating work and effort they were able to raise and restore almost the entire ship because of the lack of oxygen in the, in the mud and silt in the harbor there, the wood and many of the artifacts were preserved in an extraordinary condition. And so when you go to the Vasa Museum in Stockholm today, you walk and you can see this ship almost exactly like it was when she sunk on her maiden voyage. In its entirety. 
I mean, I mean this, it's entirely. It's all, it's all encased in this very a large museum that yep. they built around it. Yep. But you can walk under it, around it, uh, on top it. On it's top, look down absolutely on it, amazing. You can get a whole sense of just what was naval architecture in the 1630s. And it's just, you, you can't do that yeah. by any other way, no matter what modern technology you use, when you can actually see and go up to the actual real thing. And the UK did that as well, at least in part with the Mary Rose. With the uh, that's, Mary a more, Rose. that's a more modern facility. I think it was maybe five or six, maybe it's more now. Um, They've done a marvelous they job it. at Portsmouth. Yeah. And uh, it's not the ship in its entirety, but you, it's pretty much the half. It's almost like a half hull. It's, it's about half the hull yeah. because she turned over instead right. of sank straight down. She, in fact, turned over, and much of it then was destroyed, the part that was in the water. But the part that was taken over by the silt was, again, preserved because of the lack of oxygen. In the 1980s, she was discovered and brought up. And then for years and years and years, kept moist in preservation efforts. But now she's able to be seen along with all kinds of artifacts that they discovered. Human artifacts like uh, shoes and, and chests and, and things that are just amazing, but also pieces of the ship mm -hmm. that tell the story of naval architecture. On, on several case, levels. the 16th century. Yeah. They, I can't imagine, I don't know what they spent on, on that facility. I was there two years ago. And... It's true what you've just said, the number of artifacts that they were pulled that really tells the story of day-to-day -day life yeah. on a ship of that period. But what it also does is it reminds, in the case of the Mary Rose or the Vasa in Sweden, it reminds the residents and citizens of those countries just what their heritage is and what the countries are who are obligated to use the seas to trade and protect themselves. And America's history and America's uh, story is connected with the sea. So naval history and naval heritage is not just about a particular battle. It's about how the Navy operates day to day in preserving our sea lanes of communication, defending our coasts, acting as a deterrent, uh, developing new technologies. And so even though we're a continental kind of country, the United States is a maritime nation. There is no question about it. And these ships are great, great examples of telling that story. That's a good segue, Bill, because the next part that I wanted to speak with you about was the museum life itself, and specifically about this museum. And perhaps that sounds a little parochial, but I don't think it is, because the Naval Academy Museum is the oldest Navy museum in the country. It has a specific mission with regard to the midshipmen, and it has since 1845, since its founding. But you played a really instrumental role in changing this museum, and I'd really like to to talk with you about that. And for, first of all, which so for our audience members, what what years were you here as director of the museum? I was here as director from uh, 1994 through the summer of 1998. When did you know that there needed to be a change in in the direction for this museum? 1994. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that's because I was in the history department mm -hmm. as well since 1983. And I knew that in the museum there were these extraordinary artifacts, but they were displayed in a way that was more the old traditional 19th century cabinet of curiosities and teaching American naval heritage to class after class of midshipmen. I could never use the museum 
in an effective way to say, we're talking about this particular subject matter and we're gonna go to the museum because I can tell the story better by you seeing the artifacts and these are historic items to tell the story itself and convey the meaning of why we're even talking about this. So I knew right off the bat that what this museum needed was a change to become part of the curriculum's success with each year's midshipman. And so by, by telling that to some interested classes who were looking for projects to help the Naval Academy, uh, it fell on some very receptive ears that the museum could in fact become a teaching museum, could in fact become a direct relevant part of the brigade of midshipmen's lives and help not only the history department, but leadership and law. Uh, and other departments to be able to become part of the curriculum that is the four-year program in trying to educate and train future naval officers. So this is how we started, and by telling the story of why the museum is not succeeding and how we can make the museum succeed, that became the story that fell on very receptive ears and fortunately got the ball rolling, for which uh, my successor, Scott and you uh, really took the ball and ran with it and have done the marvelous jobs of what we started back in 1994-95. When you're selling something like that, uh, is there resistance to, to efforts to, to change things? That's a, that's a pretty broad question. There, there was some resistance because anything that is new and somebody hasn't thought of is foreign and therefore not exactly embraced enthusiastically. But we kept hammering away by saying, but when you teach midshipmen, wouldn't it be better to teach them with the objects of that they can see as opposed to coming into the same classroom, sitting at the same desk, hearing the same words, as opposed to having an experience of going over and seeing the things that this professor is talking about and in each midshipman's mind begin to envision, oh, now I get it, oh, that's neat, and be able to tell the stories that are needed to educate and inspire them to become good Naval Marine Corps officers. Bill, this has been extremely informative. Thanks so much for coming here. And again, I, I want to thank you as one of your successors who's trying to build upon what you, you established in this new era of the Naval Academy Museum. I want to thank you. Uh, again, you have you have always answered questions and given me advice and in a very public manner I think it's important for people to realize uh, how important it is to work with with people and to listen to them and that's why whenever I have a major decision I always turn to my predecessors and say hey what do you guys think of this that we're kind of doing this and I want to thank you very much for that you've you and Scott have been so gracious and helping me develop and, and it's something that I will carry you know on the day that I decide that that it's time to hand over the reins to somebody else that I hope to be able to convey to them as well. So thank you very much. Well, it's been my pleasure, but uh, nothing that's uh, worth done, doing is done exclusively by one person. It's always been by a group of people, yeah. and that's what it takes. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we hope you, if you did, please leave feedback on any platform you're listening to this. We hope you have a great day and a great holiday season. Thank you.
Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.